commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not give false testimony, you should not defraud, honour your father and mother. Jesus declared, all of these, I, Jesus, teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm just going to pray for Emily. Um, Father God, thank you for being here with us tonight, and I pray that you just um, use Emily now to speak to us. I pray that you just open each of our hearts to hear what you have to say to us tonight. Amen. Good evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Emily, and I'm the student minister here at St. Nick's. Um, so basically, I oversee anything that happens for students here. And it's great to be here with you this evening. This evening, we're continuing our series on Mark. So we're now in the second half and the second term of our series on the Gospel of Mark and his account of Jesus' life. Let's turn the clicker on, ready? Great. Uh, last term, we begin begun the book of Mark following Jesus' ministry. And it's a fast-paced, breathless, vivid stream of happenings following Jesus as he interacted with big crowds, as he shared intimate encounters with the few, as he healed and made miracles, and as he taught and told stories. The first half of the book of Mark is all about who Jesus is, and we see the climax of this in chapter 9 in the transfiguration, which Gareth spoke about last week. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain for a mountaintop moment, and he gives them the ultimate revelation of who Jesus is. And in and amongst this middle chunk of Mark's gospel, and in and around the pivotal revelation moment of chapter 9, we see the disciples begin to wrestle, and we see Jesus begin to address what it actually means for him to be who he says he is, what it actually means for him to be who he says he is. In chapter 8, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say I am? And Peter replies by saying, you are the Messiah. And so Peter and the Jews of the time, when they thought of who the Messiah would be, 
Um, They expected the Messiah to be a victorious military king who would rescue Israel from the Romans. But in these chapters, in this middle chunk of Mark, Jesus begins to correct the disciples' misconceptions. And he shows that being the Messiah actually meant that Jesus was to be a suffering servant. And ultimately, he was to give up his life in order to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Throughout chapters 8 to 10, feel free to go away and check them out. Jesus models what it is to be a servant, surrendering his life for the sake of others and teaching his disciples to do the same. And I believe that today, um, this is what God wants to speak to us about. He wants to speak to us about surrender. In our passage, Mark 10, verses 17 to 31, we see a man come to Jesus who believes that he has surrendered, but then he becomes undone as Jesus lovingly points out the one thing that he lacks. And as the man walks away, we listen in as Jesus turns to his disciples and teaches them about what the truest surrendering really looks like and why that is a story we should want our lives to tell. So we're just going to walk through the passage together this evening, drawing out what we can learn um, from this passage about surrendering to Jesus. So do keep your Bible open in front of you. If you haven't got a Bible and would still like one, put your hand up, um, and also it'll come up on the screen. So our passage begins at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, having just finished blessing some little children, is continuing his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as he gets going, a man runs up to him and falls on his knees in front of him. We don't know where this man has come from. We don't know if he's been listening to Jesus' teaching or whether he's just spotted Jesus on the move and ran after him, overcome with a desire for answers. In Luke's version of accounts, we hear that this man is a certain ruler. Yet in Mark, he's only referred to as a man. But wherever wherever he's come from, and whoever he is, it's clear that the man desperately wants to speak to Jesus. He runs, which was quite an undignified thing to do in that time. And it was even more undignified if he was a ruler. And he falls at Jesus' feet, displaying humility, making himself less to demonstrate that he sees Jesus as greater. This man is desperate to catch Jesus on his way, to interrupt his journey. And he's longing to hear the answer to his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies saying, well, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus' response is provocative. He lists the commandments that the man already knows. And the man confidently, boldly declares, Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. It's an interesting thing that a man so sure that he has kept 
all the laws he needs to. A man so sure that he has been diligent in submitting to God's authority all of his life. It's an interesting thing that a man like this should be so desperate as to run after Jesus, to fall on his knees in front of him and beg him to let him know what he must do to inherit eternal life. To all intents and purposes and onlookers, it looks like this man was living a life surrendered to God. He demonstrates this by falling on his knees in front of Jesus, desperate to learn, and he says that he's meticulously kept, keep, kept the law of God. You know, surely a man like this would receive eternal life. And I think there's a real genuineness to this man. He thinks he has done what's right in the Lord's sight. He thinks he has surrendered all. It's like there's just a nagging feeling of doubt that maybe he's missing something or perhaps, you know, he just wanted some reassurance that he had been doing everything right. I think there is a genuine fear of the Lord in this man, a genuine desire to live a good life for the glory of God. And yet, there's also a clear sense that this man has approached the whole thing backwards. His question about what must I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is all about him grafting, it's all about him earning his righteousness, it's all about the works that he himself can make. And Jesus knows this, which is why he provocatively only lists six of the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, he lists the ones that are about external works, the things that other people could see that he had clearly upkept. But he misses out the commands about the internal goings-on in a person's heart. He quite significantly misses out the commands about how we are to love God and to forsake all of the loves and idols. And so we see that the man's surrender is only actually on the surface level. The man misses that it's not a question of what we can do for God, but of whether our hearts are postured in a way that accepts what God has done for us and loves him with our whole lives as a response. I think the man has a genuine desire to surrender to God and genuinely believes that he is. But because he's got it all backwards, his surrender is only superficial. I expect there are many of us here tonight who, like this man, we think we have genuinely surrendered everything to God. And we are genuinely seeking to. Yet perhaps, like this man, we might have just missed the point slightly. We might feel like we've surrendered because we're doing the right stuff. We're coming to church most Sundays. We're reading our Bible pretty regularly. We're maybe giving a bit of money to church and we're praying for a friend to know Jesus. Or perhaps we feel like we have surrendered because our view of surrender is limited, only surface level in comparison to Jesus' radical teaching. Last week, Gareth Spreak briefly spoke about how sometimes we may have too low expectations of what it is to follow Jesus and that God wants to expand our expectations. And I think that this can be true for us when it comes to surrendering. Our expectations of what that looks like are too low, too surface level, and we need God to expand them. 
Like this man, we might be surrendering out of a legalistic place of thinking about what we can do to get ourselves right with God, rather than surrendering from a posture of having had our hearts undone and transformed by what God has done for us. We might think we are living genuinely surrendered lives to God, but I want to encourage us all today to take a second look, to ask God to expand our expectations. This passage teaches us that surrender to Jesus goes beyond surface level. In our passage, Jesus prompts the man to take a second look at the posture of his heart, to take a second look at the extent to which he really was willing to forsake all other idols and love God first, the extent to which his surrender went beyond surface level. And so move on to verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It's really tempting um, to just skim over this bit, um, to skim over the gravitas of Jesus' response to the man's question. Um, in my preparation, I've kind of danced around this quite a lot, uh, danced around trying to dig in really deep into what it means. Because Jesus says, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Let's just let that sink in for a moment. Because Jesus didn't say this as a flippant comment or as a joking request. This was a serious response to the man's very serious question. The man was desperately seeking reassurance on what he had to do to secure salvation. And Jesus' response looks straight into the man's heart and pinpoints the one thing that he was not willing to surrender on his material wealth. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Externally, it may look like the man's doing well because he's obeying the law. It might look like God looks on him with favor because he's living a good, godly life. And this would only have been accentuated by the wrong cultural belief of the time that wealth was a sign of being blessed by God. But Jesus' response reveals that internally, the man's heart was actually more for money than it was for God. He hadn't forsaken all other gods. His money was his God. And in fact, his wealth was the obstacle between him and true surrender to God. Having provocatively pointed out to the man that gaining eternal life isn't about what we can do, but about what God has done, it might seem a bit ironic that then Jesus tells the man one more thing he needs to do. But to legalistically look at the statement like this as a checklist would be to miss the point, to see it backwards yet again. Because in this response, Jesus is saying that to follow him means the denial of everything we have in declaration that all we desire and all we need is in him. 
To follow him means the denial of everything we have in declaration that all we desire and all we need is in him. He alone is our salvation. There is nothing we can do to add to or take away what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And so the right response to this is to surrender everything we have, surrender all that we are and follow him. Jesus' response provoked the man to consider whether his heart was postured in such a way that he was willing to surrender all that he had in declaration that all he needed was in Jesus. I was at a student worker gathering earlier this week, and one of the sessions we had was um, a Q&A panel on how to go about discipling new Christians. And one of the guys on the panel um, made a comment about how we're not always very good at helping students, but also people in general, realize that following Jesus means laying every card we have on the table in front of him. When Jesus is king of our lives, we need to let him have the first and final say, and probably all the middle says, on everything We're called to surrender to him our values, our beliefs, our morals, our everyday little choices, our relationships, our work, where we live, our money, our wealth, everything. Surrender to Jesus means laying all our cards on the table. The denial of everything we have in declaration that all we desire and all we need is in him. And we see this worked out in both the small everyday choices that we make and the big life decisions. When I was in my second and third year house at university, I went for a phase where I was asking God to grow me in hearing from him and obeying him, which is a very risky prayer to pray. Um, In my house contract, it said... uh, that we weren't allowed to light candles in our house. But I was getting to that stage of life where everyone begins buying you candles for your birthdays and Christmas. Here's a little picture of some candles. Uh, It was probably also the stage where everyone was obsessed with owls, which is why I've included the owls on the screen. And I just really wanted to use these candles that I was getting given. And so I did, so I was lighting them in my house, even though the contract said that I shouldn't. And one day, as I was lighting one of these candles, I just felt a nudge from God, and I felt him say, you shouldn't be doing this. You've signed a contract to say that you won't. And so, from that day on, I stopped lighting candles (laughs) in our house. And that might seem like a really silly little example, because I was fully aware that there were many other students lighting many of the candles in many of the houses, and they were not having issues, you know, their houses were not burning down, they were fine. But there was somewhere, something in this where I recognized that if I couldn't surrender to God in this small little way, how would I ever live a life surrendered to God in the big ways? Laying all our cards on the table means making little everyday choices to surrender. But as we've seen from the passage, laying all our cards on the table also means learning to surrender in big, radical ways. A few years ago, I read 
an amazing autobiography um, by the missionary Emily Foreman called We Died Before We Came Here. And this book tells the story of her family's time as missionaries in a dangerous Islamic nation in North Africa. And towards the beginning of the book, Emily writes how before she got married to her husband, Stephen, he gave her um, a book called The Book of Martyrs. And he asked her to read it, explaining, it's only fair that you understand my level of commitment to God and his call on my life to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, no matter what the cost. And Emily describes how she was reading this book and just feeling overwhelmed by the stories of all these martyrs, knowing that her husband had calculated the cost and he was willing to do the same. And she felt God prompt her to think about how far she would be willing to go with God. And so they got married and they settled into life together. Um, And as they were doing that, there was an undeniable call in their life to go share the gospel with those who had not yet heard it. And so they decided to go test the water by going on a short missions trip to North Africa. And on the plane back, Emily felt God say to her, if I called you back here, would you come? Are you willing to trust me with your life, your children, and your future? And Emily recalls how she was tired of the struggle in her heart. So she prayed for deeper faith and trust and said, yes, Lord, I surrender. And that surrender, along with her husband's, ultimately led to her husband being killed for the sake of the gospel in that country. Surrendering to Jesus means laying all our cards on the table, denying everything we have, And for some of us, this includes our lives in declaration that all we desire and all we need is in him. There was one card which the man in our passage was not willing to lay before Jesus. The man's instinctual response was to walk away sad, to say, no, that is too much. No, I am not willing to give you that. And I wonder today, What cards are you keeping close to your chest? What thing would make your face fall if Jesus asked you to surrender that before him? If he told you it was the one thing that you lacked? Where would your instincts tempt you to walk away? How far are you willing to walk with God? I imagine, um, I mean, maybe it's just me, but for many of us here, I think there'll be one thing that our hearts and guts sort of churn at, at the thought of having to surrender that to God. It might be the whole area of money and wealth, like this man in the passage. You know, we live in such a materialistic society and generally live pretty comfortable lives. Would it be too much if God asked us to give that up? For others of us, it might be a belief or a value that we've carried for years, influenced by the world around us. Is it too much for us to give them up in order to realign our beliefs and values with that of God's word? For some of us, it might be one of those little everyday life choices like lighting candles that we know just isn't really honoring to God. It might be a TV program we watch or a little habit that we just can't help. Would it be too much for us to surrender those to God? 
Or perhaps for some of us, it's a bigger, more radical ask, like Emily the missionary. Maybe God is calling us into a new job, a new country, or a new vocation. Would it be too much for us to surrender our plans in favor of God's? What cards are you keeping close to your chest? What is the one thing that you lack? Before we move on to the next verse, do just notice how before Jesus tells the man the one thing he lacks in verse 21, he looks at him and loves him. How did Mark know that Jesus loved the man? Well, it must have been written all over Jesus' face. Jesus looked at this man, not with judgment, not with frustration, not with mocking laughter, but with love. Jesus loves the man before the man decides whether or not to follow him. He loves him first, regardless of the outcome. And Jesus loves us before we've laid all our cards on the table. So when we surrender to him, we're not surrendering to the hands of fate in a risky card game, but we're surrendering all we have to the God who loves us first, and he knows what's best for us. This passage teaches us that surrender means laying all our cards on the table. As a man walks away, Jesus turns around to his disciples and says, verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Within here lies perhaps one of the most memorable images of the Bible, the camel going through the eye of a needle. Here's a little illustration about it. It's an image full of impossibility. An image that Jesus uses to highlight the backwards nature of the kingdom of God. A kingdom where to be wealthy is not necessarily a blessing from God, but more often a blockage to him. Because as Jesus says in verse 27, salvation is only possible with God. And as we've already seen, the man understands so wrongly, salvation is not about what we do or what we have but it's about accepting what God has done for us. And there is something about this that is more difficult to accept if we are rich. If we are rich, whether in wealth or social capital or intelligence or in circumstance, then it is a lot easier to rely on ourselves, believing that we can gain our own righteousness. And it's a lot harder to sometimes even remember that we should be relying on God. I don't think it's surprising that most of the people I know who have become Christians did so at a point in their life where they didn't feel rich. They didn't feel like things were going in their favor. It was easier for them to see that they needed God and easier for them to surrender the little that they had to him. 
And so I think this is an encouragement for us today. If we're here feeling poor, contrary to what society or even the church might tell you, know that this is actually a great, great blessing. It is easier to surrender to God when we feel like we have little to give. Yet there's also a great promise for those of us here today who are feeling rich. Some of you will know that me and my husband, Jono, are in the very final stages of buying a house. It's very exciting. Um, And we've been in these final stages for about a month and a half now. Um, And it's been quite drawn out, quite frustrating. um, You know, a long process of waiting for all the things to come together at the right time. But I don't think this has been a coincidence. As we buy a house and increase in wealth, it would be really easy, and it has been really easy, to feel like we can rely on ourselves more. Having a house in worldly terms brings more security, more joy, more freedom, more wealth. But as we've waited, and undoubtedly prayed more about the house purchase than we would have done otherwise, I felt God remind us that our security is only ever in him. Our joy and freedom will only ever be satisfied in him. And really, he is all the riches that we will ever need. It's been a real reminder to hold our future house with an open palm, to surrender that place to him, for it to be a place that points to his glory and not ours. You can keep me accountable to that. For those of us here who are feeling rich, it may be harder to surrender all that we are and all that we have. But Jesus promises that all things are possible with God. So whether we're struggling to surrender the riches we have, whether we've fallen into relying on ourselves rather than God, or whether we're just not even a place where we want to surrender to God, take heart in knowing that all things are possible with God and pray about it. So from this passage, we learn that surrender to Jesus is only possible with God. And that's not the only thing that Jesus promises. Verse 29, he says, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the beauty of the gospel, our surrendering to Jesus, to denying ourselves and following him, is only possible because he surrendered himself first. Jesus was not asking anything of this man, anything of his disciples, anything of us that he hadn't already fulfilled or was going to fulfill himself. For Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus had far more wealth than this man. He has far more to give up. He had far more to give up than we will ever have. Yet he gave up all of heaven's riches to come down, to take on human skin, to enter into our mess and to die on the cross in order to deal with that mess, including all the times when we have not surrendered. And because of Jesus surrendering, when we surrender to God, we have the most astounding hope in the present and in the future. For Jesus rose again, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the pattern of the gospel. For when we surrender everything to God, when we humble ourselves before him and before others, when we leave home or forsake others for the sake of the gospel, Jesus promises that we will receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Yes, along with persecutions, but also we will receive eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. The deepest rooted and longest lasting security, joy, freedom and wealth can only be found when we fully surrender to the one who surrendered everything for us. Following Jesus means the denial of everything we have as a declaration that all we desire and all we need is in him. The man in our passage went away sad, unable to surrender that which would have given him the greatest wealth of all, the eternal life with Jesus that he so desired. So we learn from this passage that surrender to Jesus gives us promise for the future. And so what have we learned? We've learned a few things. We've learned that surrender to Jesus goes beyond surface level. Surrender to Jesus means laying all our cards on the table. Surrender to Jesus is only possible with God. And surrender to Jesus leads to promise for the future. And as we wrap up, I just thought I'd um, share with you a few ways that I think perhaps God wants to lead us to respond tonight. I think there's, um, there's something around declaration. There's something around us declaring our surrender to God, even when perhaps we don't feel it, even perhaps when we know that our current surrender is only surface level. It's a declaration knowing that all things are possible with God. And as I was going over my talk this afternoon, I was just so struck by um, that the man fell at Jesus' feet. He fell onto his knees. And he did that to show that Jesus was more and he was less. And so I think there's something tonight around us getting on our knees as a declaration of who Jesus is and declaring that we're surrendering to him. 
And the other way that I think God might be calling us to respond tonight is something around um, laying our cards down before him. And I just feel that there might be people in this room who are keeping cards close to their chest. There's things that you kind of don't really want to lay down before Jesus. But tonight might be the night that you're called and you feel ready to lay that down. Or maybe you don't feel ready, but you feel like you should lay it down. And I particularly um, felt um, in that story of Emily the missionary, she had a, a struggle in her heart as she surrendered. And I wonder if there's some people here who there's a real struggle in your heart around surrendering. And I just would love to encourage you to seek some prayer ministry around that. In a moment, Will's going to explain how we're going to actually respond and all of that. But why don't I just pray for us all as we end. Father God, thank you that you are so wonderful, that you are so worth our surrender. Thank you that you don't ask anything of us that you haven't already done yourself. And so, Lord, we pray this evening, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move in our hearts? Would you highlight and pinpoint the one thing we lack? Would you highlight where we need to surrender, where we need to lay our cards down before you? And, Lord, we ask that this would all be for the glory of you. Should all be for the glory of God. In your name, amen.